0: Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit
1: thevineoc.com. morning again. Hope you're doing well. Hope you had a great New Year and hope the New Year's treating you well. Uh, this past week, I've been spending time in prayer and planning just for the year ahead. And so in light of that, I invited a dear friend to come and join us today and preach uh, from God's Word, Mike McNichols. If you don't know Mike, he's just, just an awesome guy. He is a professor at Fuller Seminary. He was actually a, a, a pastor and a church planner in Fullerton for many years. And actually, he's multi-tenant. He's actually really great at bass. And so it just, we're so blessed to have him with us. And so please join me in welcoming up our friend, Mike McNichols. Can <laughs> pray for you, brother? You bet. Awesome. Let's pray together. So Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we pray that through it, you would speak to us now and that you'd open our ears, God, to hear your voice and that you'd give us the grace to respond. And Father, we pray for Mike. We pray that you just put, put your spirit upon him afresh, God, and that you would speak through him now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Thank you.
0: Well, good morning, it's, uh, it's always a privilege to be here with you, and just a point of clarification, I am sort of semi-retired now. I still teach an occasional course at Fuller Seminary, and I'm just an okay bass player, where's Jesse? <laughs> My friend Jesse is a really good bass player. Uh, I just wanna say how much I appreciate, Dennis and Carrie, what you just said about the small groups. I love what you're doing here. Uh, for the last five years, I've taught a couple of courses at Fuller Seminary with a really similar format. We study practices of the church and spiritual formation and stuff like that. And each week they've got to write stuff and do different things. Um, it's it has borne, a lot, it has borne a lot of fruit in their lives. Uh, the difference is they have to pay money for it and fight to get a good grade. You do not have to do that. This is like the best bargain in the world. And we go 10 weeks and we have to write papers. You don't have to do that. Six weeks? Are you kidding me? You can do this. You can do this. Um, well, today, if I have looked at my calendar correctly, is the end of Christmastide, and, uh, and it is also the day before the season of Epiphany begins, which means that today is Epiphany Eve, technically speaking. Now, I am really happy that the retailers have yet to discover the full scope <laughs> of, the, um, of the church year, um, and so we are not likely to see any more holiday displays until we approach Easter in like, what, two weeks? Uh, so you're not gonna see any, uh, any you know, decorations or epiphany trees advertised in the newspaper or that are online and you're not gonna see yard blow up decorations for Lent. None of that is going to happen. And um, now in terms of holiday spending, we've pretty well wrapped it up. By now, everybody's pretty much done except for the returns. You gotta take care of all of that. And, uh, but for us, for many of us, the, the Christmas season has been a full season, hasn't it? And we include New Year's into all of that as well. You know, there's been, there's been all the, the decorations and the busyness and uh, the dinners and the parties and the church services and all of the things that, that come with that. Along with that, there's still a lot of nativity scenes, right? I mean, we had two in our house alone uh, but you see them in other places as well, don't you? They're still in public displays here. and There are store windows or wherever. Uh, very peaceful, very placid nativity scenes. But the biblical narrative offers a story that is in many ways very, very different, as I'm sure you know, from our American cultural celebrations. It's a story of intrigue, and danger, and murder. Um, To be very horribly specific, it's infanticide. Uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus have to flee from Judea, and they've gotta travel more than 400 miles south into Egypt in order to escape the the violent schemes of King Herod, who is a complete murderous lout. And uh, so then they hear that he's dead, And uh, the family heads home, only to discover that Herod's evil son, Archelaus, is now in charge. He's another murderous lout. And so they keep moving up from from Jerusalem, another 70 or so miles north into Nazareth. Uh, Now, this is a whole lot of wandering. I mean, it would be a whole lot of driving in a car. But this is a whole lot of wandering, especially for people who are traveling primarily on foot, Uh, In fact, it really is much more than just simple wandering. It's a displaced family negotiating exile. You know, displacement and exile are not the things that we typically associate with the Christmas season, but... But we know about those things, don't we? I mean, we hear stories all of the time about people being displaced from their homes because of natural disasters, uh, because of wars, because of oppression. It happens all over the world. It happens here in the United States because of natural disasters. Uh, There are people right now during a a, a cold winter in refugee camps all over the place. We know about this. These are people who are forced to leave the familiarity and perceived safety of their homes and are now trying to kind of reorient themselves and survive in places that are foreign to them. Now, most of us cannot even imagine that kind of an existence. But Jesus and his family experienced just that they experienced displacement and exile. In that experience, Jesus actually kind of mirrored the the, the plight of the ancient people of Israel, a people who had been scattered from their homeland and, and forced to live in exile in Babylon. In the midst of their displacement, God spoke to them through the prophet Jeremiah and gave them hope for a future that released them from the paralysis of disobedience and freed them into joyful obedience to the God who would ultimately rescue them. But the people of Israel, no matter what, would still have the bitter taste of exile on their tongues. Well, yeah, there's a whole lot of drama in our Christmas story. There's uh, the star. There's the angelic announcement to the uh, shepherds, there's the magi, the wise men, there's the murderous schemes of Herod, uh, and there's the escape to Egypt and Nazareth. That's our Christmas story right there. Now, those events would, would always frame Mary and Joseph's memory of the time surrounding the birth of Jesus. This family formed its earliest bonds in exile. when uh, When my dad was uh, was two years old his uh, my grandparents his parents uh, sent him off to live with his grandparents. Uh, now this was nineteen twenty six in wyoming i 've seen photographs of the house that he was living in. It was pretty dismal uh, and uh, to this uh, up to the point of my dad 's death last year he didn 't know why they sent him away. It was some economic issue uh, My grandfather was drunk a lot and wandered a lot. Who knows what was going on in the family? But off he went to live with his grandparents. And he stayed there for two years without ever going back home. Uh, My grandmother visited him once in a while, uh, but he was displaced. And then when he was four years old, they brought him home. And to his amazement, He discovered that he had a younger brother that was not around when he first left, a two-year-old brother. The two-year-old brother thought that he was the alpha male of the family. Who is this kid? My dad says he remembers Uncle Bernie throwing himself on the ground screaming the minute my dad walked in the door. I thought, who is this guy? That characterized, that formed their relationship until Uncle Bernie died in his late 70s. They never got along. Uh, that, early, that early experience of, of displacement formed something within my dad. Uh, it caused him to see himself as one who never quite belonged in his own family. Well, we don't often think of Jesus being formed in any way by his context and his life circumstances, but of course he was. Uh, I mean, he, he was formed to understand human life and relationships and interactions in a certain way, in a certain time in history. Think about how often Jesus used parallels to make theological par- parallels, parables, <laughs> which were parallels to <laughs> daily human life. You know, stories about everyday life that would be familiar to people, that came out of the context that had formed and shaped his thinking about how life worked. Um, he... Um, He was formed in the language structures of the day, and he was formed early on by exile and displacement, uh, not only by what he had experienced as a child, but also by what he saw among his own people as an adult. He lived among a people who, who knew the stories of exile, had perhaps experienced exile. Uh, now, now, there were clearly many who continued to live in foreign nations to where their ancestors had been deported, and they would return to Israel for various celebrations and festivals like, like Pentecost. Uh, and even those who were living within Israel knew that they weren't entirely free. Uh, they, they were, in a sense, exiled in their own home country with the Romans as their current overlords. Well, as a, as a person formed and shaped by exile... Jesus could fully identify with his own people. In many ways his life was was a reflection of Israel, not as they were at that time, but rather as what they were intended to be. A nation that would be the light of the world. A people who would be a people for God and through that people all the families of the earth would find blessing. That's what God intended for Israel. And Israel was exiled because of unfaithfulness to God. Jesus was exiled because his birth threatened the dominant powers of the day. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God God claimed to be the father of that disobedient son, Israel. A son that, while disobedient, was still loved and cherished. And Jesus would ultimately embody true, faithful. Sonship, as his life revealed all that Israel should have been. You know, scholars and thinkers have, uh, for a very, very long time, debated about Jesus' nature uh, in relationship to God. In the early centuries of the church, they, they sort of landed finally on the conviction that Jesus was indeed fully God and fully human, while recognizing that that whole idea is still kind of a mystery to us, but that was the conviction, the conviction that still holds sway in our creeds. Um, And it was important for them to understand and to remain biblical in their recognition that in Jesus, God took humanity fully into himself. And this underscored the belief that in Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, that God fully identified with human beings. Now now hold on to that for just a second. I mean, isn't that something to think about for a while? That God, rather than being distant and detached from us, fully identifies with us. That God fully identifies with us. Now, sure, we, we can theorize that Jesus, in whom the fullness of God dwells, that he had cells and nuclei and bones and muscles and, and all of that, like all human beings do. So we could say, well, okay, in that, God knows what it's like to have a human body. But the Bible gives us a picture of Jesus' human experiences on a level that's, that's gritty and dangerous. I mean, he was born into poverty. He and his parents quickly become refugees. He never rises above the status of a peasant. I mean, this is God with scabby knees and dirty hands. This is God who could use a bath and a diaper change. Um, This is God who knows what it means to be truly human, I mean, we we see this in our scriptures, in, in the birth narrative in Matthew. Matthew cites Isaiah and says, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. And then Matthew throws in a parenthetical interpretation, which means God is with us. And in the prologue to John's gospel, John says, and the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory is of a father's only son full of grace and truth. And in the fourth chapter of Hebrews we hear this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. I mean, come on, aren't you glad that this is true? I'm really glad that this is true. We can face God confidently in our weakness because God has already identified with us in weakness. God is not put off by human weakness as the powers of the world might be. In his promise to, to rescue his people from displacement and exile, he makes sure to include the weakest among them. We, we hear this as God speaks through Isaiah in that same chapter we heard this morning. It says, see, I'm going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor together. See, when God rescues his people and brings them home, he doesn't focus only on the strong and healthy ones, you know, people who can show proof that they have skills and competencies that will make Israel what it was in its glory days. When God rescues, he rescues all the weak and the strong, the sick and the healthy, they all come together as one people, as the people that God loves. You know, there's been a a way, especially in uh, North America, U.S. mostly, uh, of some churches of note, most of which are on television, uh, uh, not to be specific, uh, of, uh, of thinking about God as the one who pours out Blessings of money and property and health and opportunity to those people who have sufficient faith or even, and this is true, those who make significant donations to their churches. <clears throat> with enough faith and or seed money, as it's sometimes referred to, God's blessings will come abundantly. If faith is lacking, then the blessings will be thin. The marks of the truly devout Christian, therefore, is, is health and prosperity. The marks of those with little or no faith is sickness and poverty, or so the thinking goes. I was uh, giving some thought to this one day as I um, was talking to a a Nigerian friend of mine. It was a former student of mine. And I had read that there were a number of big churches that kind of were like that in Nigeria. And I asked him about it. And he said, well, yeah, that's there. He says, but it's approached a little differently than what you see here in the U.S. He said... um, there are those churches who tell people in their communities that if they turn their lives to Jesus and come into the life of the church, that um, their circumstances will improve. They offer that up. And, uh, and there are plenty of people in that culture who are at the economic margins of life that that claim appeals to. But what's interesting, he said, is that some of those churches mean something different from what we often hear here in our culture. They mean that, that the church is gonna help them build order into their lives that they'll help them find jobs in medical care and help for their families. They'll reach out to business owners and ones who have supervisory positions and see if there's job openings that they can help people get into. Uh, it's, It's an invitation to be lifted from the isolation of poverty and into the mutual care of the Christian community. And in doing so, to then learn how to care for others. See, in that way, those churches that do that would be enacting God's desire to embrace the weak and powerless and bring them into a place of love and care. You know, it, it might be good this week for all of us to reflect on the season of epiphany that begins tomorrow. You probably know that the word epiphany means to make known or, or to reveal, And the story of the Magi, the the wise men in Matthew's gospel provides the imagery for this season as these these shadowy Persian Zoroastrians or whatever they are, as they search for Jesus and in finding him, they bow down in worship. Uh, Jesus is revealed to them as king of the Jews but not one to be feared and respected in the way that Herod demands to be feared and respected. This one is to be worshipped. Herod is not. So how will Jesus be revealed to us now? We, many of us here, have come to believe that he is indeed Israel's Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and, and maybe we feel like we've got a lot of our theological questions somewhat settled about who Jesus is. So... What fresh revelation of his person, his character, the way that he shows us the face of God, how might we anticipate that? I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I'm I'm seeing how the the story of Jesus' birth is a story about, about living at the margins of power, a story of displacement, a story of exile. Jesus and his parents learned very early on that the holders of power and control were not friendly to the possibility of a new messiah on the horizon. Now throughout church history, Christians have succumbed to the siren song of power. It's happened over and over. Preferring a seat at Herod's table rather than getting their knees dirty as they worship the refugee Christ in a stable. The church's witness has always suffered when earthly power was assumed to be the remedy for weakness. Jesus was revealed, not in the, in the grandeur of palaces, but, but rather in the hiddenness of society's margins. His whole ministry of, of healing the sick, of raising the dead, of casting out demons, was ministry at the far edges of what might have been known as the good life. In those days, if a person heard that Jesus was in town, the most likely way to find him was to go figure out where the sick people hung out because that's probably where he would be. So in this season, how might we look for Jesus to be revealed to us in fresh ways? In the mid-1960s, a, a satirical book about Christian witness was published and it was made into a short film a couple of years later. It was called The Gospel Blimp. Anybody here ever seen this? Oh, are you have you really Michael you've seen this movie? Yeah, it's pretty pretty goofy. <laughs> pretty good, but funny. I you can you can get it on Vimeo, vimeo.com. It's a 35-minute film. It's campy, it's goofy. The acting's mm, questionable but i found myself laughing all the way through it it really was quite quite humorous and and a bit poignant as well uh in the gospel blimp it tells the story of a a group of well-meaning christians who decided that the best way to share the good news of jesus christ in their community was to do something spectacular so they got their hands on a blimp like you do and uh and they set out to evangelize their town by trailing banners behind it with bits of Bible verses, uh, preaching through a public address system, playing very cheesy music as well, and then dropping piles of tracks all over the place. And that's the best part. People get hit in the head. They fall into trash cans. Um, yeah, it's, it's – and, and uh, one guy is sitting at a sidewalk cafe drinking beer, clearly in this film, not a Christian. I mean, Come on. And one of the tracks falls in his beer. He looks at it, throws it out, glug. Um, it's great. It's very funny. And, uh, but after a while, the person who had taken on the role of captain of the blimp became obsessed with his own, his own power and his newfound celebrity. And, and most of the friends who had first gathered together to come up with this idea were swept on it, up in it as well. Uh, now, the people of the town were not all that impressed and were mostly irritated at the mess that was being made. But the whole thing started in the backyard of one of these guys. As they talked about, how do we, how do, we do this? I remember they, they look over this little hedge at the neighbors next door who are having a little intimate dinner to the husband and wife. Again, clearly not Christians because they're knocking back a couple of Budweiser's with their <laughs> meatloaf, you know. And, um, and so they figure, yeah, this is how we reach people like that. But one of the friends over time became very disillusioned with the whole process. And he pulled away from it all. He was the guy who owned the house where they had the first conversation. And he started paying attention to his next-door neighbor because he noticed the wife was missing all of a sudden. It turns out she was sick. was in the hospital, very, very ill. And they began to engage with this neighbor. Um, the woman went to the hospital and sat with the, the sick wife and talked to her, listened to her her fears and concerns, told her own story of faith, read to her, spent weeks and weeks and weeks doing this. They reached out to the man next door, invited him to dinner every single night um, so he wouldn't be alone and feel like he was abandoned. And uh, over time, they came to faith in Christ. And so they had the blimp crew over to the house for another gathering to hear the story of these these new Christians. And uh, the neighbor said that that these friends here had become Christ to him, is how he put it. That they were Christ, not in the spectacular, but at the margins. You know, perhaps in looking for what Jesus is doing at the margins of power, at at a distance from celebrity and notoriety, we experience the possibility of entering into that work. In, In a sense, being Christ to people, that is, representing Him to others. Darren, you guys can come back. Maybe more accurately, we would say that we look to reflect Christ, to demonstrate His love and His care. If we are following Jesus, then we are following a displaced Christ who, in terms of conventional understanding, ministered from a place of weakness and did so at the margins of power. So how might God reveal those places to us in this season? How might we be attentive to what God is doing at the margins that surround us right here? Will you just pause with me now as I close and, and hear this prayer as we enter this new season of Epiphany? Father God, the star that led the Magi to the stable announced to the world that its Savior was born. Today we live in a world that is still covered by darkness and still needing to make that journey to the stable door. May our lives reflect your light day by day as we seek to serve where you have placed us, that we might be the means through which others can encounter Jesus Christ. Amen.